Hello and welcome to this seventh installment of our Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders and I have the honor and pleasure of moderating today's discussion. In this nine-part series running through the remainder of 2021, we're looking at some of the most critical issues in the field of rare diseases. If you'd like to watch previous webinars in the series, you can find them at webinar.sciencemag.org. There you will also find archives of previous webinars as well as copies of this, a, a copy of this presentation. We have already covered many different topics related to rare diseases, including the challenges of diagnosing and detecting rare diseases and the role of primary care doctors in this process, the pros and cons of neonatal testing, the application of artificial intelligence in rare disease detection, diagnosis and research. And today we are shifting gears from the physical to the mental to address the psychological impact of rare disease and the importance of not neglecting the mind-body connection. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'm now very excited to introduce our panelists to you who are today split equally between the US and the UK. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us on this call. And as usual, I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do. So uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Kathleen Bogart. Uh, Kathleen, please go ahead. Hi, so I am Kathleen Bogart. I'm an associate professor at Oregon State University here in America. Um, and, you know, my interest really is um, squarely in quality of life and psychological support for people with rare diseases. Um, I was born with a rare disease myself, and I'm uh, very interested and motivated um, to serve my community and to provide additional support. I've done some of the largest quality of life studies um, of people with diverse rare disorders, and I'm happy to chat with you all today and, and learn more about um, what everyone is up to. Great, thank you so much, Kathleen. Uh, next, we have Dr. Deborah Regeer. Deborah? I'm Dr. Deborah Regeer, as you mentioned, and I am in Washington, D.C., and I'm the medical director for the Rare Disease Institute at Children's National. So I'm here on, in the U.S., and my work is around how do we educate to improve quality of life for all of our patients and families with rare disease, whether it's through the diagnostic odyssey or once they have a diagnosis. I'm also the um, director of the palliative care genetics clinic here at Children's National, which is a combination of doing palliative care as well as understanding the genetic etiology for end of life or um, those individuals who have a short expectation of life length. So again, it's all about how do we optimize every day? And we realize more and more mental health is a huge component of that. So that's why I'm so excited to be here today and discuss more about how do we move things forward for all of our families. Great. Thank you so much, Deborah. Uh, next on my screen is Dr. Amy Hunter, who's the first in our UK contingent. So Amy, over to you. Thank you, Sean. I'm Amy Hunter. And as Sean says, I'm based in the UK. I actually work for a UK-based patient organisation called Genetic Alliance UK. Um, we're a national policy organisation, so our members, rather than being individuals, are small, largely small condition-specific rare disease patient groups. Um, so we work to give them a voice at a national level in the UK, um, and we do a lot of work to support them in their development um, as organisations. I'm the uh, director of research at the organization. The kind of research that we do is really focused on um, patient experience, especially around healthcare and other services. And then we can then we draw the evidence base together to, to feed into our policy work to try to improve things. Through that kind of work and through our interactions with our members, we hear a lot about the burdens of living with a rare disease in terms of, in terms of mental health. And we carried out a survey and an interview study a few years ago that uncovered um, a, a huge unmet need for, for better mental health support. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much, Kim. Uh, and finally, uh, sorry, Amy, um, finally we have uh, Kim Winter, who is uh, also in the UK. So Kim, if you could introduce yourself. Thanks, Sean. So I'm Kim Winter and I'm a psychoanalytic psychotherapist by background and been working for about 25 years as a therapist, but became involved with the rare disease community uh, professionally in 2014. And really in recognition of 
how little support there was being offered to rare disease communities and individuals. And wanting to change that, um, started an organisation which is a non-profit called Rare Minds CIC last year, which is working with patient organisations and healthcare professionals to both provide mental health services online and by telephone because we well, we, we recognise that one of the things is, is a difficulty in access and uh, getting to appointments for rare disease patients and family members, but also to raise awareness in the very way that we are today in this webinar, really, of how mental health is absolutely key to, to physical health care too. Great. Thank you so much, Kim. So before we, we sort of dig into the mental health side of things, I really wanted to just touch on some of the, the unique challenges that are encountered by people with rare diseases. So maybe we could just talk about some of those. We've covered them in previous webinars, but I think it's important just to lay the, the, the foundation. Um, so Kathleen, maybe I'll come to you first. If you could just sort of talk about some of the issues that, that are unique to rare disease patients. Right. Um, so, you know, Nadia can start with things that are common to people with um, other chronic diseases and then move on to what makes them unique. You know, so uh, rare disorders, um, you know, often affect uh, multiple organ systems, um, are treated by numerous specialists, not just a single provider. Um, and they are paired with the unique challenge of lack of information, lack of a roadmap of what um, someone's care or life would look like. Um, and so that's really what makes it extra challenging. Um, you know, we already know that living with a common chronic condition is, is quite challenging, but, uh, you know, some of the additional issues uh, faced by those with rare conditions are um, finding community, uh, finding people who have had other experiences like them, um, and, you know, really finding those doctors and specialists who know, uh, know about the condition and, you know, even uh, know what to look for during that diagnostic odyssey. Um, so during all of that, there's a, a lot of experiences of um, maybe invalidation or disbelief um, towards the individual with the rare disorder, you know, maybe it's all in their head, um, if nothing is being found, um, and, and it can really, um, can really affect someone's sense of hope and, and optimism. Mm -hmm. uh, Deborah, maybe I can have you jump in since you, you do work with rare yeah. disease patients. Yeah, and, I, I, and actually, as you're speaking, Dr. Bogart, the thing that came to my mind is so often in medicine, we prioritize the, the, the medical concern that, you know, the organ system, you know, there's liver issues or there's a kidney issue, and that's going to kind of trump the priority list. So, so often I'll sit with families and say, okay, we need to see 12 specialists. Who are we going to see for one through 12? Mm -hmm. And sadly, when I first started in this career, the mental health never made it to the top 10 and thankfully now I've learned and now it does. I think it's a matter of how do we prioritize our time and energy and resources and I think sadly a lot of people in rare disease have been prioritizing it inappropriately. You know now we know the better we can prioritize our mental health the more likely we can handle all of those other issues but that's something that's just coming into this field and we're acknowledging that that's a huge component of every rare disease. So I think as you said that, you know, that complexity, physicians are really good at, this is the, the organ system, this is the test I need to send, this is the screen I need to do. Those are the easy things for us to deal with. Sometimes it can be really hard to deal with, okay, I need to find you a therapist, that's a harder thing for me to do, I need to find a good connection, I need to find you a community, which that's a really hard thing to do is to find community sometimes. So I think exactly what you said, Dr. Bogart, it's so true. How do we kind of in the middle of all of this medical milieu, make sure that we don't forget that mental health is one of those components that we always have to bring in. And I think um, Deb touches on something very important as well when she said that there's this list of specialists that you need to start seeing. It's that sheer sort of number and complexity of the care that certainly in the UK we find has a huge impact on people's emotional well-being. 
because it seems to be a real struggle for that care to be coordinated effectively. And certainly over here, the, the burden of that tends to fall on the individual or the family, the parent. So there's a lot of chasing of appointments. There's obviously going to be a lot of taking time off work, taking your child out of school. Sometimes you have two appointments in two different two different hospitals on the same day. And, you know, because people aren't talking to each other or, or conversely, you've got two appointments three days apart in the same hospital. It would have been a lot better for everyone if they could be um, at, the, at the same place. And I think when you throw into that mix, when you've got so many healthcare professionals involved, if they are not speaking to each other as well, and they're just dealing with their little angle, the, whichever medical angle they're specialised in, then you can get to the point of uh, the individual losing trust in their care. And we do see that a lot um, because there, when you lack that joined up thinking, then mistakes are made, there are gaps and people feel like the, the care they're receiving isn't of, of good quality overall. I think, I think raising really interesting points, Amy, one of the things we hear quite a lot with patients who access our services as therapists is that they might have tried to access therapy before, but either they uh, found their way to someone who didn't have much understanding of the complexity of rare disease, and so there might have been a tendency to what I would call sort of over pathologize their sort of symptoms again or, or look as Kathleen was saying to is this really a physical symptom or is it an actually an emotional one that sort of co very complex interface between physical and emotional but I don't know how it is in the states but in this in the UK too that as Amy was saying you know patients are managing a lot of appointments and doing a lot of juggling of their care now, if you add into the mix of that, it might be really helpful to see a psychologist or a therapist. It's another appointment to manage. That appointment gets missed, and then someone might send a follow-up letter, but you might have to re-refer, or the psychologist or therapist might think, oh, they're not very motivated, it's not the right service for them right now. So it's, I think historically it's been really difficult for people to access the right sort of therapy or psychology services you had funding issues into that as well. And it's a sort of perfect storm, you know, why it's hard to get there. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happened great, but. Yeah, and I'm gonna comment back on, in the US, we have the exact same issues. We have the same issues with coordination of care. You know, it, it sounds great in the US, we have all these resources, but coordination of care still falls to the parents or the families and the family and the, and the patient. Mm -hmm. The other issue that we have is, depending on the type of insurance or healthcare, um, system that the, the patient is in, they are, may or may not have access to very good mental health um, support. They might not have access to a therapist um, that's covered. This can be get very, very expensive um, for families. And for example, my, my favorite therapist in the area doesn't accept any insurance. So it's all out of pocket cost mm. for families for my favorite rare disease therapist in the area. That's just one example of, I think it's, I, I think it's the same between here and in the UK for us that it, it, there's a lot of access issues that we can all share in understanding and thinking about how do we improve access, no matter where you live. You all need to think about that as being a priority. So I'll just kind of echo some of those uh, reflections on the US um, that, that Doug was sharing. Um, I think kind of one slightly more challenging thing about being in the U.S. is the, the great distance that we encompass, right? So um, while I spent some time in the U.K., while um, rare disease mutations in, uh, in, the, in the U.K. may have to travel a few hours by train to get to an appointment, um, it's very common in the U.S. if you want to see, um, you know, the the couple of eminent people uh, in your rare disease that you may have to fly from coast to coast, you know, for seven hours. Um, so add that on to everything else. Um, and, and the other thing I'll share, the really important point about mental health care um, and, uh, and payment for that, because we have such a um, strange healthcare system that's so piecemeal, um, is that, you know, 
I like how you mentioned, Dad, that you have a favorite mental health provider. Um, because much like what you were saying, Kim, in the, in the UK, in the US, very few mental health providers are familiar with rare diseases. In fact, um, it, it, to my knowledge, there's no special training available to focus on rare diseases. The closest you would get would be a health psychologist or a health social worker um, who has some broad training in uh, working with chronic diseases. But as we're saying, there's something so unique about being rare that uh, you know most healthcare or most mental health providers will not have experience with unless they have worked with a lot of clients. And that's why, you know, I think about kind of dad's favorite person um, working in that space. And it's just because they get a lot of experience working with that community. So it's really hard to come by and you may have to fly or travel to really get to that space. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but the pandemic has been interesting in that, yeah, in that we've been able to connect more with telemedicine. Um, you know, maybe if you don't need a physical examination, you can, you know, zoom in to be with your provider who would otherwise be across the country. And especially people are able to access um, a wider variety of mental health care with some recent changes in, um, in payouts through our, most of our insurance companies. I, I think the pandemic has really made a difference in that regard, Kathleen, you're quite right. And it's one of the ways in which, you know, it's become more acceptable to sort of, and, and easy to access all different sorts of care, really. Um, I, I, think, I think the other thing I'm aware of is that a lot of mental health care professionals are quite frightened of rare diseases. I don't know if it's quite the same in physical health care, but that idea of do no harm, you know, translates over into the mental health care field. And, and certainly we, you know, we have patients on our books who said to us, well, you know, I tried to approach someone and they said, oh, I'm not very familiar with rare diseases or they don't fit under a service remit. You know, the NHS, the NHS is very stretched, you know, and if someone is slightly off to one side, as rare diseases often are, there's the feeling of, well, maybe we, we can't quite bring them under our umbrella of services. So I do think, you know, more training and more awareness for, for mental health care professionals quite widely would be really helpful. We're a really small organisation. We can't, you know, support everyone's rare disease mental health care. So getting that awareness out there and giving people confidence, actually, to understand just a bit more about rare diseases generally, even if the specifics are something that patients will work on with their, their therapist or counsellor over time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think things are changing. I think there is more openness to both using telemedicine and you know, mental health mm -hmm. issues generally being talked about as a result of the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. We've, we've touched on, on a lot of very different uh, uh, parts of this issue. Um, so thank you very much for your, your answers to that. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about funding, we talked about the complexity issue, which, which does seem that like some, to be something that is particularly unique to the rare disease community. Um, you know, a lot of people will go to a doctor and they might have a single disease and, you know, there obviously are mental health issues associated with that. But when you're looking at seeing, like you said, 12 specialists, I mean, that's, that to me is, is crazy and adds hugely to the burden. Um, the, Telemedicine, I think, is something important that maybe we can touch on later. Um, and also, I, I do want to talk a little bit more later about um, how we can help doctors better understand rare diseases and maybe not be as scared of them. Um, but just to, to continue this conversation, um, so me medical problems are stressful for, for everybody, um, but there are certain stresses that have a greater impact on, on patients with rare diseases. Um, and what I'm just wondering is when, when they approach a doctor, with these issues and with mental health issues, is there a stigma attached to, to this particular conversation? And so are, are patients reluctant to talk about their, their, the mental health issues related to their disease? And the other part of that is, are physicians reluctant to ask about it? And we, we did touch on this briefly, but um, maybe Amy, I can come to you for your thoughts on this. Maybe I think maybe your study informed some of these questions. Yeah, we didn't look at this, the stigma question and, and maybe um, the other panelists can come in on that a little bit. My feeling, though, um, through exposure to the mainstream media over here is that 
there's a lot of willingness to have the conversation in a you know in a, a more public sense than we've we've had before uh, which is a good thing that's a positive thing um what we found people told us through our study in terms of um interactions with rare disease healthcare professionals is that there seems to be a huge reluctance on the part of those professionals just to ask the question, how are you doing? Or how are you coping? Um, how are you feeling? And it's unfortunate because those really simple conversations, you don't have to go into being a psychotherapist. Those really simple conversations can be very powerful um, and can be very valuable because it's just about validating how, how people are feeling. And that came through very, very strongly. Um, what I'm not so sure about is whether the healthcare professionals who aren't asking that question just don't have time, it doesn't occur to them, or whether there is actually an unwillingness. And I guess it varies between individuals. I could quite understand, certainly um, with the underfunding of the of mental health services here in the UK, that healthcare professionals may be concerned about one, opening that can of worms and whether they can handle that conversation effectively and sensitively themselves. But two, if they do then feel that there's a case for referring someone on to see, to receive professional psychological help, whether actually that's going to be available and whether it's going to be appropriate for that individual. Um, I mean, I completely agree with that, Amy, I think. Um, I think it's a very interesting question that's being raised. Why aren't you know, physical healthcare professionals asking more? Just those really simple questions, as Amy says, that are so validating to patients. Just that, how are you coping? How are things? How are you getting on? Not necessarily needing to do anything more than that, actually, often. It is the acknowledgement that actually this is a lot to, to be coping with, to be bearing. That in itself is fundamentally therapeutic. And I think we forget that. It's not about needing to ask a question and then send someone on necessarily to someone like me. And I think, you know, it is that confidence in being able to um, ask the question to bear the discomfort, perhaps, of someone being angry or upset or disappointed or frustrated without necessarily being able to provide an immediate solution, but just going, yes, I get it. This is hard. That's enormously powerful in its own right and you know that in itself would be incredibly powerful for the healthcare professionals to learn to sort of be more confident in asking are you okay how's it going mm -hmm. it's quite simple really. and, and Kim, the other... I love that point and I love actually just like a quote like that are you okay how are you coping I love that as something that healthcare providers can have in their back pocket to ask um so on the American side, um, I did a, a large-scale study on quality of life and mental health among people with rare diseases about three years, four years ago now. Um, we had about 1,200 participants with 200-plus different rare disorders, um, and we found that uh, so the, the um, measures that we used were measures that already had norms in the US population and also had norms for common chronic conditions. Um, so for every domain that we assessed in quality of life, people with rare diseases scored significantly poorer than the US population and people in the US with common but chronic conditions. So this really does point to, um, you know, an extra challenge with people uh, with rare disorders. And um, specifically, I want to point out that for depression and anxiety, uh, people with rare disorders um, were uh, more at risk for depression and anxiety compared to 70% of Americans. So we know that this is a very at-risk group. Um, and you know, just like what you all have been saying is happening in the UK, it's happening in the US as well. I think doctors are um, strapped for time. And as you say, do not want to open a can of worms that might take, um, you know, more 
time and energy. Of course, they're well-meaning, but the way the pay schedule is set up, you know, you have like just a few minutes with your patients. Um, so, so there's that hesitance. But also, rare disease patients, especially those with um, with conditions that are not visible, um, are very acutely aware of being told that it's all in their head. So they may be afraid to ask for mental health support. The doctor might even be, you know, um, aware of this as well and afraid to ask because it might be invalidating. Uh, but what I want to just really point out here is <laughs> you, you can have a conversation that separates, you know, I think that the physical problems that you're presenting with and reporting are all due to a psychological problem. There's a way to separate that from you're dealing with a lot right now. How are you coping? I'd like to, you know, send you to someone if you're interested who might be able to help you with, you know, the general uncertainty and discomfort that you might be experiencing, right? And I think that um, just taking another moment to clarify, I believe you, I validate this. Um, and, you know, it's important for you to have extra support if you want it. I think it's an incredibly helpful way of thinking about it, Kathleen. And it's sort of something I can think about, which is how do we make the idea of mental health support just ordinary as part of rare disease care? That it's just sort of that question, as Amy said, you know, how are you doing? How are you coping? It's just asked frequently and it's not... Um, it's not either underplayed or overplayed. It's just seen as one of the ordinary challenges of living with a rare disease with everything you say you have to cope with. Of course, it's going to be stressful. Of course, there's anxiety involved. How can we help you? you know, what can we do to support you? It doesn't mean you're being defined as someone with uh, a mental health problem, capital MHP. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. No, thank you for those comments. And, and yeah, please go ahead, Deborah. So I, I'm going to hop in here as that physician who's scared to sometimes bring it up because that I'll throw that in there. I, I, I feel like I need to go and after this airs, I'm going to go take that clip and show it to my trainees and say it's therapeutic, even if all you can do is ask. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to cure it. That's not your job. Your job is to ask. And that innately is therapeutic. I think that's what we need to tell healthcare providers. No one thinks you have to cure this. You're acknowledging that it's the reality and you're saying, this is the reality and I'm going to be in your reality with you. It's the same way of saying, you know, you need to see your cardiologist because you have a valve issue or you have some other issue. It's the same thing. It's just, it's another specialist. So I think um, helping to demystify that to, to the physician saying, you're not supposed to cure their depression with this question, mm -hmm. but asking the question actually helps. I think that's what we need to make it so that you don't have to be the perfect doctor. There's actually a, an education series I, I'm doing. And the one thing we realized is we needed to add an hour into how not to be the perfect doctor and it's okay to do what you can do. Mm -hmm. And no one expects you to, to cure the person with rare disease. That is not your job as their provider. Your job is to live life with them and to be with them on the journey. And how do we help physicians be okay with not curing it? which is a really weird and hard place. And I think that's where the, and like that underlying, like, why don't they ask? Why don't they do it? It's because they really wanna cure it. And, and it's not always curable. It's treatable, absolutely. It's not always curable. And I think probably keeping an emphasis on those conversations need to be quite simple is probably, yeah. it's probably actually a really important message. Um, a lot of people who took our survey, unfortunately, of, of the less than 50% of people who had been asked by their healthcare professionals how they were feeling when those conversations went on, quite a significant proportion said that they came out feeling worse after the conversation. Now, we didn't dig into what happened in those conversations. So I can't really comment further, but I think that message about just keeping it simple and showing that you're, you understand that there's an emotional burden and you know people may be struggling, they may be feeling stressed, that in itself is, is really helpful. I think also what you're saying about wanting to cure as a physician is really interesting as well, because, of course, one of the things that I don't think we touched on earlier 
about rare conditions and why they can be particularly difficult to live with is that there are very, very few curative treatments for rare conditions. So if you think there are, um, I don't know, between six and 8,000 individual rare conditions, in Europe, there are only a few hundred licensed treatments. Um, and on, on top of that, in Europe and the UK, there's always a fight to actually, it, when there's a, a licensed treatment, it's being developed, it's trying to be safe, it can be sold. Um, on top of that, because of the way our health system is set up, then there's often a struggle to actually get funding so that the, the medicines um, are accessible to individuals through their health services. So it's it's a high stakes situation for people with, with rare conditions. You have a diagnosis, you feel like you're getting somewhere um, and physicians want to obviously want to, to cure their patients. But actually, a lot of people feel then that they're up against a brick wall in terms of what's actually available. And I think that's quite a major element in terms of having impact on, on people's mental health. I've been thinking quite a lot about the um, something you were saying, Deborah, really resonated with me about the desire of rare disease physicians and I think also patient leaders to to get it right, to be just what this person needs because and I think this links us back to the diagnostic odyssey that often people have worked so hard mm -hmm. to find their way to the right person there's a tremendous pressure then on that healthcare professional to sort of come up with the goods to be to be the best that they can be and of course that's a wonderful thing but of course it's it's very inhibiting sometimes and it's a real pressure on that healthcare professional too so i'm quite interested in how the impact of the diagnostic odyssey affects the healthcare professional as well as the patient actually that fear of getting it wrong the desire to get it just right to want to be the best is all in the mix i think with this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and, and um thank you for bringing that up Kim. it's actually the, the next Part that I wanted to talk about is is the the psychological impact of this diagnostic odyssey, which I think is something that is maybe not completely unique, but fairly unique to the rare disease community. Um, and we we all know how long it can take sometimes to get a diagnosis. So um, maybe Kathleen, I can come to you with these couple of questions. And the the first is is why would somebody want necessarily want a diagnosis if no treatment is available? And together with that, what, is, what are the psychological impacts of not getting a diagnosis? Um, so maybe you, if you could talk to that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this question is a very real um, experience for many people, right? As, as Amy was saying, um, most rare diseases do not have a cure. Some have treatments. Um, but, you know, it's quite likely that uh, when someone gets a diagnosis, it's not going to be, okay, well, we're, as the British would say, done and dusted, and we'll just apply that cure and, and figure it out. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of value to just having that name of the rare disorder. Um, it really opens a lot of doors. It allows the person then, <coughs> excuse me, to connect with um, professionals who have the most expertise in that area. Crucially, it allows them to connect to the rare patient organizations like the ones that Amy supports. Um, so, you know, for many rare disorders, uh, there is, you know, at least one organization that's run by uh, people who have the condition, who have family members with condition, or who otherwise are passionate and expert uh, at the condition. And these groups, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with them. I'm on the, um, the scientific advisory board for um, one that supports people with my own condition, syndrome um, and they can just be so valuable um, so being connected with them really opens the door to a community and identity so others are able to meet people with their own experiences for the first time because rare diseases are so um, 
so rare um, and geographically dispersed, you would never find someone just, you know, in your hometown, even at your local hospital. Uh, you really have to go uh, these extra steps to connect with a community that way. And now there's a lot of online ways to do it through um, Facebook and through other organizations. Um, but it really allows people to have a sense of um, what their life with the rare disease might be. Um, it provides them with role models and with mentors who have those conditions. Um, and, you know, the other thing I, I would just add is that um, we actually have some really nice quantitative data to support the idea that having a diagnosis benefits mental health. So in that same survey that I was talking about before, we found a significant correlation with length of time since receiving a diagnosis uh, and lower anxiety and depression. So regardless of whether these people actually had treatments or cures, simply having a name and having, you know, kind of a roadmap eases this mental health burden. And I think having that label um, can help reduce isolation. Also, um, Kathleen's talked about reaching out to people who have similar experiences, but also just in interactions with your existing community with your family and your friends who can find it really hard to understand um, what you're what you're going through, especially before you have the diagnosis. Somehow having a, a name, some kind of framework for people to start to think about what it is can really help. Um, and that can extend to non-medical services as well. So certainly in the UK, it can really help families, for example, get the kind of um, support they need for their child in an education setting, um, for social care, for, for example, for respite care for families and that kind of thing. Even though a lot of those things supposedly should be based on need and nothing has changed, you know, from the day before you got a diagnosis to, to the day after your, your needs and what kind of support you, you need in education or for, um, for social care may not have changed. Um, and so, the service and the support should be there. Actually, what we find is that having that diagnosis, having that label can suddenly open doors and just make life that, that bit easier. Um, it also, of course, having a diagnosis can bring knowledge in terms of likely progression of a condition, so prognostic information. And for really serious conditions, of course, for families, it can be very important if you're looking for um, what are your, if you're looking to have more children and you want to have information to inform those kind of decisions as well, that diagnosis can be incredibly important for in all these different ways. I think what's for me is so fundamentally important about having a name for your condition or conditions is that it gives you, as, as I think we're all saying, that access to a community. Often when we're running workshops, one of the things that we in a way, I sort of feel I could say very little, but what I need to say is just look around this room and when you're having those really dark or difficult moments, you know that there are other people in this room out there in the world who will understand, who will be going through something similar or will have gone through something similar. And the enormous sort of powerful potential of that to ease that sense of aloneness and isolation, which of course can lead on to depression, anxiety, or despair, actually. I think despair is something that often captures for me something more of the rare disease experience for, for some people. So I, I wanted to spend maybe the, the last part, sort of the last third of this webinar, talking about some of the solutions um, to, to the issues that we've raised. I think we've you've brought up some fantastic issues, uh, particularly around what physicians can do, uh, asking how are you, the simple questions, um, trying not to be perfect, trying not to treat everything at the same time and do it perfectly. Um, but do you have any other suggestions? I'm, I'm thinking particularly in terms of helping physicians understand how to treat these patients holistically, and also on the education side, uh, recognizing the, the unique challenges of rare diseases. So, Deborah, as a physician, maybe I'll come to you to see your thoughts on maybe some things that you've done or that you would have thought of that maybe we could, could be instituted. 
Yeah, I think that whenever we think about how do we teach other either rare disease doctors or primary care um, members of the team about rare disease and the, the unique aspects of both the diagnostic odyssey and then once you have the diagnosis, I think this idea of realizing that you're you're now their expert, whether or not you think you're the expert in that rare disease because you help them get to that point, you've become the expert. Um, and figuring out how to you know be in the unknown with them. I, I always laugh that even if you talk to the world expert, they might say, oh, I've never seen that. I, I don't know what to do with that. Just last week, I, I'm chuckling. I, I, as you asked this question, I'm thinking back to a mom last week. Uh, we were chatting and she said, hey, I don't know what to do about this. And I'm like, I've never heard of that before. I don't know. And I messaged out all the other experts in the field that are like, we don't know. And I'm like, uh, go out to the mom's Facebook group, the Facebook group, and find out if any other mom's seen this. Mm -hmm. So between my talking to the doctor, she talked to the Facebook group, we found one other person. I called up that doctor. I said, hey, what did you do for this? And they said, oh, we did this, but it didn't work. And I'm like, well, then we know what not to do. Mm -hmm. it, you know, I, I feel like you have to be in this willingness to, to listen and this willingness to try things and this willingness to say, we're going to jump in with both feet and we're going to be on this journey together with you and your family and your child. And we're going to listen and we're going to think and we're going to be creative together. And as I create educational modules for trainees, so about 10% of the genetics residents in the country come through my training program and about 20% um, about of those training in metabolic, it's a certain type of rare disease, come through our training program. And then we also run national and international training programs for researchers and primary care doctors who are interested in better understanding rare disease. So as we do all of this, it's this in very try to be very intentional about you don't have to be perfect but you have to chat with them you have to be creative with the family you have to listen and you have to think okay who can i contact who what what other resources can we come up with so this idea of how do we teach people not to be perfect but to be creative and it's a really weird place that's not what we train doctors to do i can guarantee it's not in the us and i doubt it's not in the uk either because Physicians have to be time efficient. They use standard protocols. They use, you know, best scenarios. And suddenly we put them into a milieu when there might not even be a protocol and you're going to make it up and you're going to, you know, you don't want, you want to do no harm. And yet you don't know if what you're doing is harm or not. So you're going to go for it and you're going to try it. But I think by, by communicating to people, doing nothing is the harm. It's best to try something, listen, talk, communicate doing your best is the doing no harm in that situation in rare disease sometimes. Yeah, if there's a protocol, use it. There might not be one. Um, our institution's also looking at how do we create protocols for rare disease to try to help those primary care physicians so there's a place to start. So those are the, some of the things we're doing here at the Rare Disease Institute to try to help support providers if they don't have you know, access or if, there are long, if families are long distances from someone who might might know some of those things. I just want to echo a lot of what, what Deb has said so beautifully. Um, you know, implicit to what you're saying, Deb, is um, I'm hearing that you are a great listener to your patients. And, you know, the creativity that you talk about, um, it involves listening to patients and learning from them and, you know, kind of reaching out in unconventional channels. You talked about the, the Facebook group. You know, um, I think to be an excellent provider, supporting people with rare diseases, you, you, those are the, the skills that you need um, because there's so little information, you really have to be um, creative in, in kind of taking it from as many angles as possible. And often the patients and their communities really are the experts. Yep. <laughs> I can't tell you how many patients have said, I went to the emergency room and a doctor told me they knew more about it than I did. And I said, oh, did you laugh at them? Because you should have. And then we say, yeah, I laughed out loud and told them to call you. And then you tell them, no, they're the expert. Um, so I just always laugh that, you know, physicians aren't used to that. We're used to, to knowing and we're used to being the ones that know more. And this is the case where we don't. The family probably knows more. I always really like the term, I, I don't know who coined it, but the term diagnostic odyssey, because it just so perfectly encapsulates something. And one of the things we often talk to our patients who come and see us about is the idea of a rite of passage, which of course is linked to the idea of odysseys. 
And one of the rites of passage is that sort of loss of innocence. And what we mean by that is having to accept that um, the doctors and nurses that you grew up with the idea of when you were younger that are all knowing and all powerful, you have to kind of put that down a bit when you're living with a rare disease because everyone's learning as they go along. But there is a sort of grieving that patients have to do as part of that, I think. And also something that physicians have to learn to tolerate about living in the face of uncertainty, which is, of course, what rare disease patients and families are doing all the time. So we're all practicing, we're all trying to support each other in, in learning how to manage uncertainty and the unknown. And it's not easy. You know, we do it better together, I think. And I think there are some um, particular considerations that we need to support primary care physicians with, especially when people don't have a diagnosis. So there are certain patterns of behaviour that you might recognise someone who keeps coming back and they might be talking about a different problem each time they come back. It's really important to recognise that there might be something going on. Okay, you've run a few tests for common conditions, they've come up clear. It's really important we've got this phrase over here coined by um, an organisation we work with a lot called Medics for Rare Diseases, and they coined the phrase to dare to think rare. Um, so to start to think, okay, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm not going to label my patient as neurotic. Um, I'm not going to dismiss their concerns. I'm going to listen and I'm going to dig into it a bit more. Um, and I think obviously no one's expecting every physician, especially every primary care physician to understand in depth all the signs and symptoms for a, a huge range of, of rare conditions. But what we need to get to is a place where physicians do dare to think rare. They, they don't say, okay, I've reached the end of my road. I can't go any further with this patient, um, that's it. Um, that there may be more they can do and it's important to think about those uncommon conditions as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true in mental health care too, Amy, where sometimes it's the those who get referred to, to psychological services are those sort of difficult patients or hard to help patients. And I think in the mental health care field, we need to get a bit more um, astute again about thinking, you know, dare to think rare. I, I certainly know of patients who you know, come with chronic anxiety through the mental health care system, and then they've been found to have, you know, a, a rare condition, a physical uh, thing that's affected their, you know, adrenaline systems, and that's what's been causing the chronic anxiety over time. So as mental health care professionals, we need to be thinking rare too, not just working with symptoms and symptoms. You know, another another kind of thing that I wanted to raise about how um, how doctors can support their patients. Um, you know, I think we had a really useful conversation earlier about why they might be reticent to um, refer out to, to mental health care. And I want to remind that it doesn't always have to be referring out to a, um, a service that requires payment, right? So, um, there is such a strong benefit to connecting with these rare disease organizations um, that, that we mentioned earlier. Um, I would recommend that any doctor, especially the doctor who provides the formal diagnosis or even a tentative diagnosis to let them know, let the patient know about um, rare disease organizations that exist. Um, so in America, for example, uh, we have the National Organization for Rare Disorders and they have a, a list on their website of all the organizations, member organizations that um, support a different rare disorder. It could be easy for a healthcare provider to just pull up that list and make a suggestion. Um, and I believe that, that Amy's organization has a similar um, approach in, in the UK. And, um, you know, I just want to talk a bit more about um, the stigma that people with rare disorders experience and how um, these organizations can benefit them. So, as I mentioned earlier, those with rare, um, those with rare and invisible conditions are often not believed, right? Um, but also, those with visible rare conditions are 
um, noticed, but kind of unrecognizable. I say that about my own condition, which involves facial paralysis. So there's very little public awareness about Mobius syndrome or facial paralysis in general, which is often a kind of falls under the rare disease umbrella. And so um, with, un, with uh, visible conditions, uh, strangers will often notice the person's unusual appearance immediately. Um, and they may not know how to explain it because they've never heard of it. And so this can be very distracting for others. Others may misunderstand the visible symptoms to mean something that they don't mean, you know, so maybe um, assuming that the person uh, also has intellectual disability where that might not be the case. Um, so these sorts of challenges, um, stigma occurs for, for both types of conditions, right? So both of those buckets um, and can really be uh, ameliorated by connecting with uh, communities like them. So I like to talk about attending the Mobius Syndrome Foundation um, conferences, which occur usually in person every couple of years. And um, you hear just, you know, that it is life-changing for people to suddenly be in a room full of people who look just like them and feel no need to explain. Um, suddenly they're the majority group. Um, they look like everyone else. And, you know, you hear the same thing for people with invisible conditions. So suddenly they're around people who simply understand their conditions and, and believe them. Um, so, you know, connecting people to these sorts of groups um, indeed actually has measurable benefits. We've studied um, people who attend versus don't attend those Mobius conferences, um, for example, and have found increased social support and reduced stigma when they um, do attend these conferences. So again, I just really encourage healthcare providers to help people get involved in some sort of community. I just like to echo that exactly, Kathleen. We found that with our UK community in the work that we did a few few years ago that came out as such a strong message. You know, I wish I'd known about this organization. I was left without knowing where to go after my diagnosis. And very, very few people are actually signposted by their healthcare professionals, unfortunately, um, once they, they have a diagnosis. Um, of course, because there are so many individual rare conditions, there isn't always a, a patient organization or even you know, a Facebook group uh, with your, your condition, especially for ultra rare conditions. Um, sometimes it's just inevitable that you're gonna have to look internationally to find more of a remote community. And I'd just like to put a shout out um, that a, a very useful website called Rare Connect exists that physicians can signpost to, which is for individuals who are struggling in that way to find an existing group. Um, Rare Connect will help people with a, a diagnosis to find individuals elsewhere in the world, even if there isn't that structure of a, a formal patient organization already. I think that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add to that sometimes um, there are patients that we work with who found their way to us who may have been offered and may know there is a patient organisation. But um, I think what I want to say is, is the importance of keeping awareness uh, alive for patients, that there are these patient communities, because for some people it can be quite frightening to take a step into being with others who have a condition. You're frightened what you might find out, you're frightened what you might hear. Some people are more natural joiners of things than others. So that idea of sort of just keeping it gently available, there is this organisation. Have you thought of contacting them? Because usually we find nine times out of 10, once people do make a connection, if they can make a connection with one or two people even, it's incredibly powerful and supportive. But it, it's sometimes about timing when someone is ready to take that step too. I agree completely about the timing. So especially in conditions where we might have um, a shortened lifespan, that's really hard for families to hear from other families that have lost a child, especially. So I warn them before they go on, you know, there might be others who've lost a child. If you're not there yet, don't go onto that Facebook group yet. 
do you want to talk to a family? Then, then I try to do one-on-one -on -one connections to a single family if I can, if they're not ready for that. But again, saying it's there when you're ready, but it has to be at the right timing. I agree. Mm -hmm. It's a huge resource, but the timing is essential. Great. Well, again, thank you. These are all really fantastic points, and you've you've covered most of what I wanted to talk about in this. So I, I think um, you, we've provided some really helpful information for the community out there and physicians as well. Um, there's one thing I wanted to just touch on very briefly, and Amy, um, I think you had a comment about this when we were communicating earlier, um, just ab about uh, genetic counseling. I'm sorry, it wasn't Amy, it was Kim. My apologies. Uh, about genetic counseling and the difference between what genetic counselors do and what psychologists do. So I know that not all rare diseases have a genetic component, but I think something like 70% do. So if you could just briefly talk about what genetic counselors do and how it differs from what, what uh, a psychologist might help with. In some ways, Deborah might be more qualified to answer that than me, but I, I think when I was thinking about it earlier was um, awareness from our perspective that, you know, the emphasis in genetic counselling is, is really sort of information giving about understanding the implications of the condition over time and for sort of uh, having further children or, or issues like that. But it's not often more than, well, certainly in the UK, more than one or two sessions, really. And one of the things we've found as people come for psychological counselling is that they're quite surprised that there's a difference. And I don't think there is good general understanding about the difference between genetic counselling, which is very focused in a particular way, and psychological counselling, which is unpacking the meaning of that diagnosis for you personally and for your family over time. So often patients come to us are a bit surprised and they might say, oh, I thought I'd had counselling. Oh, I can have more. Oh, well, this is quite different. So I think there isn't a good understanding still of the difference between genetic and psychological counselling. And maybe we need to work a bit more together on that over time in, in the rare disease community too. Would you agree with that? I, I so agree. I wish we had a continuum. So I, you know, in my perfect, like if I had the perfect world, the perfect clinic, we can do that later at the forum. Let's get together and create the perfect world. Uh, we would have a genetic counselor and a geneticist that starts the progress with them. You know, the genetic counselor gives that information, does like that first line kind of gives the bad news. That that What they're really good at is giving the bad news and making sure that that family can survive that hit of the diagnosis. Um, you know, here we've been talking a lot about how positive that experience is getting a diagnosis, but there are families that don't want a diagnosis because in their soul, they don't feel like it's going to be a diagnosis that they want. So they don't want a diagnosis. We haven't talked about that today, but there's always that conundrum we have too of when you don't want a diagnosis. But when there is a diagnosis, if it is one that is not one that they wanted, one that might not have a treatment at all, or for sure not a cure um, or has shortened lifespan, that that initial, how do we help you cope with today? How do we help you cope with the next few weeks of your life? That's what genetic counselors are really, that, that's what they're trained in, that's what they're good at. That does not look at how do I now keep living my life for the next months, years, decades. That's when I need long-term support. I need that long-term therapist in their community, hopefully, someone close to home, someone who they have a longer-term relationship with. In all honesty, it needs to be someone who doesn't give the bad news. Mm -hmm. so I get fired on a regular basis by families because I'm the one who gave the bad news, and I give them that right to fire me because they need someone to hate in that minute, and that's okay. Like That's fair. And I think genetic counselors are really good at being fired in that situation because it's just so hard. But I want a therapist, a psychological therapist to kind of be there that didn't give the bad news, but kind of gets to rescue them and gets gives, gives them a chance to feel like I'm not alone in this bad news. Mm -hmm. So yes, geneticists and genetic counselors, I think we, we try to get them through that first, I always say days, weeks, maybe even a month or two. But then they need someone closer to home. They need someone in the community. And thankfully with Zoom, that community has broadened mm -hmm. with Zoom or telemedicine options. You know, that's one thing we've learned. Pandemics have taught us well how to create broader, bigger communities. So I think exactly what you're saying, Kim, it's so important that we almost do a transfer of care. That would be my perfect world where it almost be a transfer of care. Mm -hmm. so that's my perfect clinical. 
Yeah, so we're, we're mm -hmm. almost out of time, but uh, Kathleen, maybe I'll just come to you for 30 seconds for a, a last comment on this. Oh, well, I definitely agree. I want to kind of go back a bit to, to uh, mention the timing, which I, I'm really glad that, that you all mentioned about sometimes you're not okay with getting a diagnosis at that point. Sometimes you're not okay with jumping headfirst into that big community. Um, and I think that really is the value of uh, the, the clinicians that are here today of helping people navigate that timing. Um, and, you know, it, it can be done, but it is a very individual Thing. Um, this is all wrapped up around identity. So, um, you know, kind of working with that person to come to terms with a changed or additional aspect to their identity um, can take time. And I think we've done a pretty good job of talking about a lot of different options and resources that are available to people when, um, when they're ready for them. Thank you, Kathleen, and thanks to everybody. And unfortunately, we're going to have to end things there as we are out of time. So thank you all so much for the very informative and interesting discussion. It's really been fantastic. Um, a reminder to our viewers that this series on rare diseases continues throughout 2021. So please look out for future events at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, thank you once again to our fantastic panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. So goodbye, everyone. Thank you.